As we turn our attention to the scripture lesson this morning, this will be our last week, reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. However it is that you can best give your attention to the Gospel lesson, you are welcome to do so. We invite you to follow along in the Bibles in the pews there or on your phone. And if you have a tradition of standing for the Gospel lesson, you are welcome to do that as well. Let us hear God's word to us this morning. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him. He put oil and wine and bandaged his wounds. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, it's good to see you here for this third meetup on a dangerous road between Jerusalem and Jericho. We are here in the third week of this sermon series, and I would remind you that on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was considered dangerous both by reputation and in reality, because it offered perfect hiding spots for those who intended to do harm. In the story that we read from the text this morning, it was the robbers, but it was also a great shortcut. The most frequent travelers along this road would be priests and Levites because they would be commuting between their home in Jericho and their temple duties in Jerusalem. And for two weeks, we've been telling you about this dangerous road and offering you sort of a, a character sketch of each man that encounters the one who has been beaten and is laying off to the side of the road. He's been beaten so badly that it is not clear the text indicates whether he is dead or alive. And so today, we meet the last of these three characters, the Samaritan. Are you ready? Okay, good, good. That's encouraging. All right. So, just kind of taking a high-level look at the plot line uh, that you read about in this gospel lesson. In this text, Jesus is approached by a man who knows the Jewish law backwards and forwards. The, the title here, lawyer, is one who would be an expert in the religious law. His question to Jesus is this. So Jesus, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? And in good Socratic dialogue, Jesus poses a question in return. He says, well, what is written in the law? Now, this is like asking a preacher to be able to, to describe certain part of a gospel lesson and compare it to another gospel lesson. And what, I mean, we're like, oh, this is great. This is awesome. Oh, you know, I got this one. I got it. And so the man in his element immediately fires off the most familiar of Jewish instructions about how one is to be faithful. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, good job. But the man is not satisfied. And so he probes with a second question. And who is my neighbor Friends, let that question hang in the air for just a moment, if you will. And who is my neighbor, Jesus? I want to propose to you that the dangerous road in this text is not really the one from Jerusalem to Jericho. It is the one that is lurking in this question. So I hope you're ready for this final journey on a dangerous road today. You better buckle up, friends. Because here we go. This, this is quite a ride. Samaritan. Jesus introduces this character as the third one who meets this man who has been so badly beaten. It is not clear whether he's dead or alive and helps him. Who is a Samaritan anyway? Well, Samaritan would be the word used to describe someone who lives a long way from Jerusalem or Jericho, for that matter. It's kind of like when you see a license tag from Hawaii here in Oklahoma. My first thought is, how much did it cost to get that? <laughs> you know, you're like, you're not from around here, are you? You know, and so this is kind of like when, when Jesus is telling this story, there's sort of a full stop of, wait a, wait a minute, a Samaritan? Samaritans, they don't live around here. They don't show up on this road. Not only would a Jew have thought, you're not from around here, are you? When Jesus introduces this character into the story, just naming this character a Samaritan would have immediately conjured feelings of disdain. You know what disdain is? You know, you know that feeling? And then also there would be another feeling that would come just automatically not thinking about it, just an automatic response, and it would be blame. Oh, well, all the troubles of the world, Samaritans, okay? So that's contextual information. The text doesn't tell you this, but from history, that's what we know, and it's very important to understanding who this Samaritan is and why this is so powerful when Jesus introduces him into this story. In order for us to understand why Jews and Samaritans felt disdain ugh, and even blame, you're the problem, okay? When they saw each other, it's important to, to go back a thousand years. It's a long time. A thousand years from the time when Jesus tells this story is when the temple was built in Jerusalem. The king of Israel that was allowed to construct this home for the Almighty God, creator of the universe, was named Solomon. Perhaps you've heard of Solomon in all his glory. And he built the temple. After he died, two of his sons ended up struggling for the throne, and unfortunately, neither of them really won. 
And it was the last time that Israel was considered a great nation. So I want to show you a map this morning just so we can kind of get an idea. The kingdom was at that point divided into a larger section in the, in the north, which would have been home to 10 of the 12 tribes, and a smaller section of land in the south, which would have been home to uh, two of the 12 tribes. So in the north was known as Israel, in the south was known as Judah. But you might, if you can see that far, notice where Jerusalem is. If you can find that on the map, what you will know is that it is in the southern kingdom, in Judah. And since the temple at that time was the only site for worship if you were a Jew, even if you lived in the north, you traveled south, probably several times a year to worship at the temple, because that's what you do as a part of your faithfulness to Yahweh. Well, the king in the north immediately saw the problem with this. So one of his first acts was to establish new sites of worship in the north. Where, you ask? In the region known as Samaria. And so, over the next several hundred years, Jews that lived in the northern part of the kingdom in this region of Samaria, more quickly lost their faithfulness to Yahweh, their connection to the Torah, their connection to their practices of worship, their connection even to their worshiping community was cut off to them. And so they felt freer to intermarry with people of other nations. And basically, by the time Jesus comes along, they have developed their own religious identity. They have their own set of holy scriptures. They have their own practices, their own places of worship. They say that they worship the same God, Yahweh, but they do that very, very differently. Jews in the South responded by judging anyone from Samaria as a threat to their safety and security, which is odd because the nations that carried both Jews and Samaritans into exile were far more of a threat than they were to each other. But alas, sometimes we'd rather hate the devil we know more than the devil we don't. And so that's just all a part of this story when Jesus names this third character a Samaritan. My point is this. Religious hatred had been simmering with occasional flares for a thousand years between Jews and Samaritans. By the time of this story, as a matter of fact, lore has it that a Jew would be considered impure if the shadow of a Samaritan fell on him. Think about that. That's how they felt about each other. And I'm sure it went both ways, friends. <laughs> Samaritans didn't like Jews any more than Jews didn't like Samaritans. And so we come to the first switchback on this dangerous road. And it is this. In this story, it is the dreaded other. Oh, no. Who shows care to one of our own. Can you feel the... The tension that starts to arise when Jesus brings this character into this story because those who were overhearing it would have assumed that the man who had been left half dead, stripped, beaten, they would have assumed he's a Jew. Jews are the ones who travel this road, right? And so it was unfortunate for this Jew that he ended up being so badly beaten it wasn't clear whether he was dead or alive. And in the pregnant pauses Jesus likely used, don't you know that Jesus had this way of sort of waiting 
to see the, the recognition dawn on people's faces. But in those pregnant pauses, they are left to imagine that this one, one of their own, who has been so badly beaten, it's not clear whether he's dead or alive, is being helped by the mortal enemy. Oh, no. Can't you just feel the lawyer at this point go, no, no, not my precious law, not my identity, surely not. Perhaps he might have even involuntarily, you know how we do this when we're surprised, he might start kind of involuntarily motioning to the priest, come on back, priest. Come on back, Levite. Come on, we promise, we'll give you a pass on the whole unclean for temple duty thing. Don't worry about it. Surely, it could be one of our own that would help this man. Don't let it be the Samaritan, please. Please. But it is. And not only does the Samaritan help him, the story says he offers the innkeeper a significant sum of his own money to care for him until he comes back. (gasps) Friends, he's coming back. Perhaps at this moment, the lawyer involuntarily stomps his feet. I know people in my life who have that response when they get frustrated. They can't even help it. They just, you know, no. Or maybe he has another kind of response, that sort of dropping of the head and the realization, maybe a tear of recognition falling from his eye. Because what is clear at this moment, friends, is that the Samaritan, the Samaritan is coming back to help this man, to make sure he really is okay, which means the Samaritan is willing to enter this place where he is despised for a second time with no motivation other than making sure that the man survives. So here is the second switchback on this dangerous road. Offering enough help to make yourself feel better? You know, I did. I called 911. Pat me on the back. It's not enough. The Samaritan says, no, I will risk it again. I will come back to check on him, to make sure that he is okay. True compassion, friends, calls for you to care enough to do whatever it takes, no matter what it costs. Then Jesus asked this question at the end of the story. You remember? He looks at the lawyer and he said, so which of these three do you think? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now remember that this lawyer, this man, had asked Jesus two questions with the intent to trap him, right? That's what the scripture says. But the case I would make to you this morning is Jesus doesn't ask this question to trap this man. He asks the question to call forth from him the better angels of his nature. Do people ever do that for you? You know, and they look at you and they go, oh, come on. You can do better than that. I got a story that's floating around in my head and I'm going to tell it. Um, Ruth Stortz and I got to go to, I know, she's like, what? (laughs) We got to go to Kansas City uh, for one of the Leadership Institute um, conferences. And uh, Ruth saw that when I, when I travel, I carry my toiletries in a Ziploc bag. Because, you know, it works. 
Keeps it from getting all over the rest of your clothes. So for, I think it was Christmas or birthday, I don't remember what, she bought me a really nice toiletry bag. And when I took a picture and I texted it to her of me with my, my new toiletry bag, you know what she said? Charlotte, we can do better. Okay. <laughs> and and that's, that's kind of what this is like, friends. We can do better. Jesus is calling forth the better angels of this man's nature when he asks him that question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And here we encounter the most dangerous switchback of them all. Inheriting eternal life means letting go of all that holds us by the throat. Things like bias and judgment, manipulation, and even hate toward others. Friends, you just can't walk into the kingdom of heaven hoping to spend eternity there when you're hanging on to all that stuff. That's not how heaven's going to be. So guess what? You have to let it go. You can't hang on to your grudges. You can't hang on to your unforgiveness. You can't hang on to your unwillingness to see the good in someone simply because of their ethnicity or their religion or their party affiliation, etc. That's not what heaven's going to be like. Now, if we expect to sit down at the banquet table of God for all eternity, we're going to need better practice than we're getting these days. Amen? So now I'm going to ask you some questions because we're going to practice today. And I told you to buckle up. You might want to strap in a little tighter. When I ask you these questions, I want you to notice your first gut response. And no judgment, please. Okay, Just notice the first thing that comes up for you because I'm not asking you to think about the question. I'm simply asking you to notice what's the first thing that comes into my mind. Do I naturally assume Muslims are peaceful or violent? First response. Do I ever feel afraid when approached by someone with a darker skin tone? First response. Do I ever feel like there are just too many women in charge? But I wouldn't feel that way no matter how many men were in charge. First response. Okay? No judgment, really. Because what, what I need to say, and can we all just nod our heads, it's in all of us. It is. I know. See, there's the amen. <laughs> That's right. It is. Right? It, it is. So questions like these are not intended to incite an argument about affirmative action or critical race theory. They're simply intended to be that honest barometer for us. You know, of what really lives inside of us, it lives inside of all of us. Some call it bias, some call it judgment, some call it prejudice, whatever you call it, it's there. So what Jesus is saying here is that somewhere in this Samaritan's life, he had done that hard internal work of learning to see the person beyond your biases. That does not happen naturally. That takes work. You have to do that work. Usually with other people, you don't even get to do it by yourself, which makes it even harder. Right? But somewhere, the Samaritan had done that internal work of seeing the person and learning to address the wrong. 
And that is work that the priest and the Levite had not done. Now the scripture is clear that the response of the priest and the Levite were not wrong according to their expectation, according to the law, according to what the people who were hearing this story would have thought. They would have said, oh yeah, I mean, he might have made a different choice, but I can see why he would have passed by on the other side. I can see why he would have passed by on the other side. They were not wrong responses. But when held up next to the response of the Samaritan, they are also not compassionate. Today we come to the communion table. I speak to those of you who grew up Roman Catholic because you know this and we can all know it and it can be helpful for us. The table throughout its 2,000 year history has been known as a dress rehearsal for heaven. The communion table is the best celebration we have going as a church. No offense to the Thursday night men's group and all the hot dogs and hamburgers and prizes and all that stuff. But this... This is a big deal because here at this table, we learn how to be one in Jesus Christ. We're practicing in a dress rehearsal for heaven. So may the grace that we find here this day soften our jagged edges so that when we do encounter that barrier that is posed by the other, and friends, we will. It is in all of us. But when we encounter that barrier because of the practice that we have had here at this table, then we reach across it. And we see the real person that is on the other side. Amen.